Good morning. Well, how's it going? Oh, well, Merry Christmas to you too. Great. Okay. It's going to be a real good morning. Hey, listen, I'm so excited to be here. I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and tell you that one of my favorite things about Christmas, obviously, um, for me, is getting to be a dad of my kids. And one of the things, um, just, I started out this fatherhood journey. Susan and I were six and a half years into marriage, and God bless us with a beautiful baby girl. She's 13 years old now, and we feel like um, we blinked and that happened. And, uh, and then right on the cusp of just getting the hang of having a one, two, three, four, five, six month old, we found out that we were pregnant again. Um, and so you're like, whoa, how, we, we, what, is, what is even causing this? I don't even know. Um, so we have this other baby girl. So right, like we're running almost Irish twins kind of thing. And she's 11, almost 12 right now. And it's a whole lot of fun. And I was determined as a dad that whenever I was caring kind of solo for the kids, because, you know, you're, you're two ships passing in the night sometimes, Susan's got things going on, and I've got things going on, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be home, and then you can go to this women's ministry thing, or I'll be home, and you can head to work. And so I was determined, especially when the girls were little, to never hear this phrase, oh, sweetie, you look so cute. Did your daddy dress you today? Like, because that would not have been complimentary, right? I was determined to never hear this expression, oh, sweetie, did daddy fix your hair? looks good. Like knowing that that wouldn't have been kind. So I was going to be the dad that there was never a question mark of of like what they walked out into the world being. And so let me just tell you, I can rock almost all of the kinds of braids. Like literally we could do like, raise your hand, come up here. I need a volunteer. No, that would be strange, but I can, like I can do this. And the girls and my little boy, Simon, he doesn't ever get the braids, you know, third kid never gets anything. Okay, so um, we had uh, this, this back and forth, back and forth. They spend literally, you know, a, a work and I'm gone and some things. And so they spend more quantity time with Susan, right? And so there's, there's more quantity time with mom. And so often when I would have them and would be solo and they're relying on me for all of their needs, they would literally default into the mommy before they recognize, oh yeah, it's daddy right? So they would say, mommy, I mean, daddy, and then kind of correct themselves along the way. And sometimes they wouldn't, and it was kind of weird and awkward or whatever. So we're on a trip one time, and this was probably one of my more embarrassing moments as a parent. Um, We're on a trip one time, and uh, Lily Kate is um, potty training, like going to the potty, big deal. Like we trained her to do that. I was like, this was harder than housebreaking a puppy, but we've gotten there. Okay, we're we're doing doing awesome. And, uh, and, And so she had to go to the restroom. And we're at, a, we're, at, we're at a gas station restroom, which you automatically kind of know this is going to be, eh, it's like 50-50. Is it going to be clean? Are they going to have the necessary supplies? Am I going to have to go in with a hazmat suit? Like, you don't know what you're walking into. And I walked into the men's one stall and occupied. And, and here she is, you know, this, this, this two and a half year old who's got to go. And you as a parent, you don't get much time warning. It's not like, hey, I have to go. And well, like an hour later, you're still okay. Like it's, you have to go, you have to go. I mean, that happens um, in older adulthood too. Okay, so you gotta go, you gotta go. And so I was just like, well, real quick, we'll just, we'll just make sure that nobody's in the women's restroom. And I, I took her in, right? So here I am in the women's restroom and we're down in the stall and I'm thinking, let's make this fast. Let's get out of here quickly. Let's get out of here. Like, let's do everything that we can. Here we are in the stall, grown man, strange situation, little girl, go into the potty, in walks another lady. She goes into the stall right next to us. This is literally bathroom humor at its best. She goes into the stall right next to us and Lily Kate says, mommy. And I was like, I've never been so happy to be called mommy in my life. Mommy, 
I mean, daddy, her shoes are pretty. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, we've got some role issues happening in our household. And we literally waited. I'm done now, mommy. I mean, daddy. And I was like, oh, we waited for that lady to make her exit. And then we quickly got out of the bathroom that day. There's, there's some roles. Um, that we see being played out in the lives of families. Um, And I know we have fantastic friends who are single parents who play lots of roles. They wear both hats in so many different circumstances. Um, And we know that that's more challenging than this whole teamwork thing that we've got going on right now, back and forth between me and... And I recognize that. And I know that that makes it harder. There's, there's changing roles in the dynamics of a lot of families because as a, as a my age kid, and we start to become a little bit more parental caregiver for our parents than we ever thought we would need to be. And I've seen that as my parents and grandparents have aged, that, that my parents very much did become in some capacity the parents of my grandparents helping make important decisions, helping set important limits. And so the roles begin to change. And we're in the book of Isaiah Isaiah this whole month and looking at these names of what Christ has been promised to be for people and not just the names that he would bear, but the roles that he would play. And it's roles that how can one do all of this? Well, it can because it's Christ. So Isaiah chapter 9, we won't spend a lot of time there today. We'll we'll look at our specific section of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and then we'll launch pad into other books of Scripture that kind of help frame for us what this means. And so if you're somebody that wants to go ahead and like in advance pack and find the place that we're going to spend, we're going to spend a lot of time today in Luke chapter 1. Beginning with that, we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be Upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Kelly Minster did a beautiful job last week, kind of setting up the fact that last week was the hard week. I can kind of take a deep breath because this one's somewhat easier, but because none of us are going to argue with the fact that we want Jesus to be a wonderful counselor. The big challenge is whether or not we believe him to be a mighty God. And if you need an opportunity, I can provide you with some audio to go back and listen to last week because it's, it's a life-changing marker for any one of our lives. When we stop approaching the God of this scripture and the Savior that was provided in it as someone who gives us really great advice and who sets a really good example and who was really kind to a lot of mistreated people, no, he's the Savior of the world. And until we're ready to align ourselves with the words that come out of this book, we'll miss out on what a good salvation that actually is. He's not just son, not just child. He is mighty God. And today we land on the phrase everlasting father before bringing it in for a landing next week on the idea that Jesus Christ is our prince of peace. And this everlasting father thing makes you get the roles a little bit weird. You're like, wait a minute. I thought he was the son. Like we've got this picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament on the Father and a lot of time on the New Testament and the Son. And we try to figure out and find where in the world the Holy Spirit is connecting the two together. But we, we have this, like we're going to put them in their boxes. God, you're the Father creator of the world. Jesus, you're the Son and Savior of the world. Holy Spirit, you're the one we're supposed to listen to when we're navigating the world. Like stay in your lanes, guys. But there's something about Jesus that makes him an everlasting father to us 
not just an elder brother, savior for us, but a father to us that we want to dive in and understand in scripture today. Seminary, they started us out at the beginning of our time there with these like 50 statements and they were called the be no do statements of seminary students. And I remember very distinctly, they wanted us to frame the idea of, okay, what is it that a Christian is? What is it that a Christian is supposed to be in the world? And so there were these statements that lined up underneath that. And the next part was, what is it that a Christian is supposed to know in the world? Where do you draw the line and say, well, if you don't be, the, if you're not be, that doesn't even make sense grammatically. If you, don't, if you don't be these things, if you don't be these things and you don't know these things, then all of a sudden you can't be a Christ. Where do we put the line that says, okay, you either are a Christian or you're not a Christian. If you're not this, then you're not a Christ follower. If you don't know this, then you're like, where do we set that bar? And then the final thing was do. Like, what do we expect each other to do in the world? And where does it land on the lens of legalism and all the expectations and obligation and the grace that we've been afforded in Christ? And so we wrestled with that in all of our classwork, in all of our course study, to kind of figure out, I don't know. Like, where, where do you land the plane on be, know, do? What is a Christian? What does a Christ follower know? And what does a Christ follower do as their unique stamp in the world to help Christ be known? This right here is the no part. It's getting these relationships right. And knowing that God is our Father. And understanding the beautiful picture of what Jesus did for his disciples way after this moment, way after the prophecy came and way after the birth came and 33 years into the ministry and he's walking around and these guys are like, hey, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he looks right at them and did them the biggest favor that they could have ever been done because for, for that day and that age of Jewish faith-filled follower who wanted to toe the line of obedience for them to be invited and look at a God whose name they were afraid to say and call him Daddy? was a beautiful invitation. And we've been invited to look at the great God of this universe, whose name for centuries people would not even say and call him the most intimate of relationship names, Father. We want to know God as Father. It's in your notes this morning. If you're following along with your worship guide, it's been in your notes past. It's, it's the idea of the, in this whole Old Testament in all of these Old Testament books, including this one, God Isaiah, and in the Old Testament prophecy, these predictions about what was going to happen in the future, prophecy always equals a promise that God made and a promise that God would fulfill. And even though people had to wait for it, because, you know, sometimes the promises came quickly in their lifetime, like a few days later, and sometimes the promises would not come in their lifetime. It would come generation upon generations later. And we're still waiting for a few of these promises to be fulfilled. And even though people had to wait back then and even though we are still waiting today we could hold on to hope because the God who fulfilled promises so far is the God who's going to fulfill promises yet to come we can trust that and we can know we can know and hang our hope on that so what does the word everlasting mean to you what does the word eternal mean to you I'm always kind of shocked by those products that say they last forever and then they try to sell you a warranty for when it doesn't. <laughs> what lasts forever to you? What's that picture of everlasting or eternal? It's the Hebrew word odd and I always want to apologize because Southerners, like first of all, Westerners and Americans and particularly Southerners, 
we just have a disadvantage when it comes to Hebrew. And everything I pronounce to you, I'm quite certain it's wrong. But this word, odd, it's It's where we translate the English word everlasting from the ancient Hebrew language. And it doesn't just mean everlasting as if it will go on forever in this future direction. It means everlasting as if it came from from forever in the past direction. It literally means both ancient and perpetually continuous. So this immediate picture that we're given of Jesus, this immediate picture that we're given to describe him as an everlasting father is a reminder to these people, he didn't have a beginning. One day we're going to celebrate a nativity. One day a whole bunch of Westerners are going to carve them and sell them for too much money in bookstores and in fancy Christmas shops. And you're going to get it and you're going to set it out once a year and we're going to misinterpret so much of it because it was probably a cave, not necessarily this like wooden nativity creature as a stable. And it's probably the wise men weren't there at the birth, like they didn't show up at the hospital with a meal train to give Mary a little bit of relief, but yet we're going to put them out there because we're going to, like millions of years from now, thousands of years from now, hundreds of years from now, people are going to get little plastic versions of this and they're going to celebrate the coming of Christ as if it was the starting point of our salvation. But this is clear. Jesus is not just a coming savior, a child that was born to us. He was an everlasting father way before that. And that's why I get so hung up on Bibles. Now they're good. Please don't think I'm knocking your Bible. If it's a red letter edition and it's got all the words of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written down in red, that's just for your ease of reference. And it's good. It helps you find and identify really quickly that the words of Jesus that he said when he was walking around and eating lunch and hanging out with his disciples, those words are written down for us in red. But to identify those words and to say that they matter more than any other word in this book of the Bible because they came from Jesus and the rest of the words didn't, he was there from the beginning and authored every single thing that we read between these pages. The book of John confirms that for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And everything that we have in this came from Christ. So everlasting Father was not just a picture that He's going to be there for us forever. It's that He's been there for us from forever. And it's not just God the Father. It's God the Son, too. He was always there. We're going to call Him an everlasting Father. What's that mean to you? What does it mean to you to know that he's been there from forever and he will be there for forever? Exodus 15, 18 says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So you want to take that picture of the same word everlasting being used in that passage of scripture? This understanding of the audience that would have heard Isaiah utter those words, that would have read those words written down, who would have hung on that promise for hundreds of years waiting for Christ to come, this is what they would have known, that the God in Exodus, who was there before Exodus, is the same one who is coming in Christ to save and redeem us. And he's not just coming in Christ, he's always been there. Got to get that picture of everlasting on both sides. And somehow, abstractly, or somehow in our understanding of what it means to have, like we can think with, I don't know, these word pictures. And like we can get on board with the idea that he's been there forever, even though he had to be born as a tiny little baby. We can somehow suspend our belief and our understanding of what happens in the natural world and get the fact that Christ, who had been there forever, was somehow born as a little tiny baby first day. One day old, two day old, three day old, two year old, four year old, five year old, six year old. Like, I, I wanna know so much about that. 
Like we get this picture of his birth, and then we get this story from when he's 12, and then we get Jesus, grown-up adult man. Like, don't you want to know some of the in-between parts? Some of the growing up parts, some of the maturity parts, some of the puberty parts. Like you want to know what Jesus went through. But he didn't start out as a baby. He'd been there for forever. And he's a father. Never had children of his own, but he's a father according to this passage. What, is, what does the word father mean to you? It's not the word odd, which is everlasting. It's the word ob with a B. I say this is the same, odd, ob, odd, ob. And it literally means originator, producer, God the Father, head, founder. This picture of Jesus is, he started it all. He produced it all. He originated it all. And he reigns over it all. And somehow the biggest challenge that we have with understanding God as a father, certainly not even understanding Jesus as our father, is that we've got really rotten relationships with our earthly fathers. And somehow we want to take the hang-ups that we have with them, the wounds that we have from them, and place them on God, rather than take the grace that we have in him and afford it to those earthly dads. It's really hard when that earthly father isn't, isn't a good picture of what this father is. And I know that that's the story of people here because it's the story of people everywhere. It's common, all too common, um, statistically and realistically to have absent dads or mean dads or just emotionally distant dads who aren't the things that we think we're supposed to have in what a father is described to be. So when you ask yourself, what does it mean to be a, a father? Do you, do you put this word in? Um, does it mean provider? Somebody that meets those physical needs. They should also meet some spiritual and emotional needs as well. Does it mean protector? Does it mean somebody that's supposed to take care of you, stand in the way of danger for you, keep you from some sort of physical or emotional scars in life? Is it the person that's called to protect you? Or maybe this, is it, is it the person that's called to prepare you? To, to prepare you for what's next. We tell our kids all the time, it's not our goal to make you happy children. It's our goal that you one day be a holy adult. <laughs> like we're not raising great kids. Hopefully we're raising really good, functioning, well-meaning members of society who are grown-ups one day, who leave and make our nest empty. We want a white sofa, y'all. <laughs> we do. We flip through the magazines and we love like white and light gray. We had a seven-year-old boy. That would be insane. One day, we're going to have a white sofa. You come over. You give us about 10 years. Like, wow, your sofa is white. That probably won't even be in style then. Man, everybody having black sofas. I'm like, we missed our window. We're not going to keep them forever. We love them. 
But our goal is not that. Our goal is to send them out there into the world to be the people that God has created and called them to be. That preparation angle matters. So when you think of the idea of father, is it provider? Yeah. But is it also protector? Yeah. But is it sometimes someone who's preparing you? Preparer? Yeah. Every year, um, we kind of do our own taxes. Now, my father-in-law is an accountant for the first Gosh, 16 years that we were married, he did them for us. I always looked at that line down at the bottom. It says, you know, this is your taxes, 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 taxes. You sign here, you sign here. And at the bottom it says, prepared by. And he would sign it. Well, then we thought it was wise to go ahead and start doing our own taxes before he was unable to do them. So that like, even though he's completely able to do them right now, we started doing them ourselves so that we can ask him questions. So that one day in the future, if he is not able to do our taxes, we're ready. Because what would happen if all of a sudden, 10 years from now, I don't know, knock a, if a 10 year, give or take a few years, something happened to him and he had done our taxes for like 30 years. And then all of a sudden something happened. Susan's dad is no longer able to do our taxes. And we just threw up our like, we don't know how to do that. Like he's preparing us. The idea that you're somehow being prepared for something else. Is, is, is that what a father means? And in some ways, we, we can all identify the, the, the moments where that earthly father, in his humanity, um, even if he was good intentioned and well-meaning, fell short of these things. Where, where somehow he didn't protect you from things that you needed protection and there's scars there. And he didn't provide um, the things that you needed providing. And there's, there's difficulty there. There's a worldview that's tainted because of that. And he didn't prepare you for the difficulties that you would undoubtedly face in life. And you feel like, I can't handle this because I'm not ready for this. Because someone didn't get you ready for this. Those are all marks of what a father can and should be for us. But in order for any of those to be true, it takes another P. And that's presence. The idea that somebody might be there for you. And it's a promise that God made and a promise that God always kept, which takes you to the idea, does this idea of father, not just earthly father, but everlasting father, does it mean hope to you? Does it give you hope? I know some of y'all think I'm fun or funny looking. I mean, whatever you want to say, it's fun, but... Like, oh, let's go to lunch. Let's have coffee. I'm great at those things. But at home, sometimes I'm just a big old ball of stress about everything. My kids know that. Uh, there's a leadership lesson in life that says that your employer might want to sit you down one day and say, hey, what's it like to sit on the other side of me? And I haven't asked my kids that yet because I'm scared of what the answers might be. Like, what's it like to sit on the other side of me all the time? Does it, does it make you feel safe? Does it make you feel loved? Does it make you feel ready? And does it make you feel like the world is full of possibility and hope? I hope so. Scripture is full of one train wreck after another of, of relationships that, that failed. You've got Adam in the beginning and Cain killed his brother. And you're like, well, where was his dad in that moment? And then you've got Noah who rescued his sons from definite drowning. And in the very next breath, they're making fun of dad because he put back one too many and he doesn't have his clothes on. And then all of a sudden, one of them is cursed forever. And it's a really, really bad deal. You fast forward to the time of the prophets, Eli, who's this great man and he's helping raise Samuel. He's got wicked sons that God called a curse on and they died in the exact same day because of the way that they were 
messing up the worship practices of Israel. And then you go to Dave and he had a lot of kids and we want to talk about Solomon. He gets a couple of books of the Bible that were really all dedicated to him. But then let's talk about Absalom for a minute. There was a really, really wrecked, messed up father-son relationship and scripture is full all the way through this Old Testament and then it, it, it teeters into the new, these really bad, messed up, one layer of brokenness after another. And you want to talk about and feel better about your messed up family? Read about theirs. That'll make you feel real good. And side note, I the one apologetic, the one, the one proof of the existence of how real this is that I just can't get enough of is the idea that if these writers really wanted to pull the wool over our eyes, if these authors and these church historians really wanted to make it possible so that nobody could ever argue with the words in this book, they would have left out half of those stories and half of those characters and half of those people. Your Bible would be a lot shorter if we only wanted the parts in it that could be proven beyond any shout of someone else's doubt. And what this says to us over and over again, that the truth of this scripture is not threatened by brutal honesty about the characters who are in it. And the God of this scripture is not threatened by your authenticity either. Because you can be a messed up person who comes to God as a father. And here's where the promise hope of the Messiah really makes a difference. And here's where it becomes a beautiful thing that Isaiah decided to include and that God inspired him to include. Not just wonderful counselor, not just mighty God, and not just prince of peace, but also everlasting father. Because the final words of the Old Testament are about just that. If you wanted to flip there, you don't have to. But Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, we're closing out not only that prophetic book, but we're closing out the entire Old Testament, and we get these words, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Obs. Originators, producers. God the Father, we're going to turn the hearts of those fathers back to their children and the hearts of those children back to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is where the idea of Jesus being a father offers us such great hope. It means that the way things are now is not the way they will always be. Something better is coming. The Old Testament closes its pages with the promise, the way it is right now, guys, as broken as your families are, as difficult as your life is, as hard as this circumstance, the way it is right now is not the way it's always going to be. And I don't want to just put a close on the pages of the Old Testament. I want to put, the, put a close on the pages of 2019 and say to you that that promise is still true. That the way things are right now is not the way that they will always be. These earthly bodies will not always be earthly bodies. Sickness will not always be the thing that prevails. Finances will not always be the things that limit. Relationships will not always be the things that are broken. Health, whether it's physical or mental or any other emotional, it will not 
always be the way it is. The Old Testament closes out with the promise and then we get 400 years of virtual silence of just living on the fumes of the hope that came from those final words that the way it is right now. How is it for you right now? Think of all the things that you wish were different right now. The way it is right now is not the way it's always going to be. And for 400 years, that audience, those people, they continued in their regular ritual worship practices, telling God that he was good, offering up their prayers to him, telling him that they believed in the promises, waiting for them to come true. There are moments in my life where I don't last 400 days, much less 400 years. Mostly in my New Year's resolutions. But the way it is now is not the way it's always going to be. And we have to know and cling to that promise as true. So you land in Luke and, and you find out just how important that is. The book of Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 5, In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Oh, you know where this story's going. You know, Elizabeth, she was Mary's cousin. Like, she got pregnant first. And then the girls were all like, I'm pregnant too. This is so exciting. Happy tears, joy. Like, we're having, like, that moment. But the weird thing about it was Elizabeth was old. Mary, we know, was probably relatively young. And it's probably, like, second or third or fourth cousins. But people were real close back then. Twice removed this, twice... Anyway, so here we go. We got this cousin situation happening where she... Wait to find out what she finds out. And they were both, this is important, both Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth his wife, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is 400 years after Malachi. Seven, maybe 800 years after Isaiah. To us a son will be born, to us a child is given. The government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 400 years into waiting on that promise, and the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children, and the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. How it is now, friends, is not the way that it's always going to be. And 400 years later, they are still faithfully and prayerfully waiting on that promise promise, but they had no child, verse 7, because Elizabeth was barren. They always blame it on the woman, and both were advanced in years. That's just a really kind way of saying old. And it says in verse 8, now while he was serving as the priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom, the priesthood had grown to include hundreds of people in every single one of the divisions. And he's in the division of Abijah. And every time they would have been on duty, they literally would have basically drawn straws and cast lots to see who had to go in and how far they had to go and what job they did when they got there. It's like a preschool classroom. You're going to be the line leader. You're going to be the door holder. You're going to be the person that says the blessing when we pray for our lunch. You're going to, like all the kids get their little job sticks and they put it on a little bulletin board. Well, here, Zechariah walks in that day, and he had been given a job stick. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside while he, in verse 9, was chosen by Lot to enter the temple outside at the hour of incense. And so he goes in. 
to the altar of incense, to an incense altar that had been there since the presence of the tabernacle built in the book of Exodus. Like he walks in to the altar of incense and he's gonna burn some of it. It smells like essential oils and makes you, makes you feel clean inside. It's like, it, what was it? That incense burning up with the little flicker of smoke going up into heaven was representative of the prayers of people. So here it is, people praying. Why are they praying? Because they trust God to fulfill his promises. Hundreds and hundreds of years in the making, a multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. What were they praying for? Elijah to come. What were they praying for? God's promises to be fulfilled. What were they praying for? The way things were right now, not to be the way that they stay. Change this, God. Help us, God. Heal us, God. Save us, God. Do what you said you were going to do. We trust you. We hope in you. We pray to you. And there appeared to him in verse 11, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I have no idea why angels are so pretty in nativities and in pictures. Because in real life, they must have looked like goblins. Everybody in scripture, have you ever noticed? They're all terrified of the angels. Well, here this guy shows up and Zechariah, of course, was afraid. And the angel said to him what they always say, do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth and for he will be great before the Lord. And then a few instructions. Um, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn, oh, just wait, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How they have been is not how they're always going to be. Can you imagine hearing those words? Because maybe they're the words that God would want to say to you today. You don't have to be afraid. I have heard your cries. I have listened to your prayer. And I'm going to fulfill my promise. Whether it's a son, whether it's a daughter, whether it's a job, whether it's some freedom, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's purpose, whether it's hope, don't be afraid. I've heard your prayer. I'm going to fulfill my promise. How it is now is not how it's always going to be. I'm going to intervene and change that. Zechariah heard those words. Now we know that he was shocked and didn't believe those words. And so God made him mute for a period of time. All the women in the room said, what, what? Let's do that for something. Yeah. Let's see if we can get our husbands to hush for a while. God intervened and fulfilled his promise. This is the B part. Be reconciled. Be a believer. Be someone who trusts these miracles. Be someone who stays consistent in your hope even when the promise seems like it delays. Be someone who consistently turns to this word. Be someone who consistently worships and serves the Lord. 400 years later, be the person that's still walking in, burning the incense, sending up your prayers, trusting in God to provide no matter how long it takes. Know that he has positioned himself to be your everlasting father. Then be someone who will worship him no matter what, no matter how long it takes. 
no matter when you're feeling barren, no matter when you really are barren, be someone who trusts. Who you are now, how things are now, and not just how things are now, but who you are now is not who you will always be. It's certainly not who you can be in Christ. There's hope for people who are lonely. There's hope for people whose lives feel barren. There's hope for people who are in need. There's hope for the person who wants a child. There's hope for the person who, it happened this year in several lives in this room. There's hope for the person who lost someone important. There's hope for the person that endured something difficult. And there's hope for the person who's caught in a crazy cycle of bad relationships in life. There's hope for the person in the room who has an estranged or a difficult or a non-existent relationship with their earthly father. And they're grasping at straws for how in the world they could ever trust God as a heavenly father because that picture has been so tainted for them. There's hope for that. And the hope is found in these promises. We want to be ready for them. That's, that's what these words say. This kid, John the Baptist, who was going to be born from Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous people who were barren and didn't have kids yet, says he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You know, later on we learned that John the Baptist himself said, no, I am not the Elijah who was to come. We're still waiting on that. Malachi said there would come an Elijah. Well, here's somebody who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah And he didn't just turn the hearts of fathers to their children, verse 16. He turned many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. At the end of the day, even people without an earthly father can have a heavenly father. And that's the most important relationship that we restore. Zechariah's mute for a while, can't talk. They got to name the baby. It's stressful. He can't give an answer. Elizabeth says, we're going to name him John. And then... Then all of a sudden he can talk again and it's like, it's like another miracle happens. Like he speaks. The priest opened his mouth and words came out. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he didn't just praise God, but he prophesied before God. And if you skip down in Luke chapter one towards verse uh, 76, he looks at his son. He said, and you child, you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This kid in the power and the presence of Elijah came to give a promise and to prepare the way for people to meet their wonderful counselor, their mighty God, their everlasting father, and their prince of peace, whose ultimate name was Jesus. I want us to be prepared. This is the do part of the be, no, do. 
I want us to be prepared to do the exact same thing that John the Baptist was called to do. He wasn't Elijah, you're not Elijah, but we can go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make way the path of Jesus to enter not just this world, because he already came, he made it for crying out loud, but to enter the hearts of people into the world so that they can know God gave us light, so that they can know God gave us hope, so that they can know by his tender mercy, he offered us forgiveness. We can be a people like John the Baptist, maybe not crazy living in the wilderness eating bugs, but we can be a people like John the Baptist who are out there communicating, Jesus is here. And it won't just be a story of earthly fathers and children reuniting, although I do think that will happen. It'll be a story of kids like us reconciling with a heavenly father like him. Because how things are now isn't how they have to stay. And if we'll follow the promise, it's not how they're always going to be. The Old Testament closed with the idea of Elijah coming to herald away. It's not over. He's still coming. There's a promise. Reconciled relationships are going to happen. And the close of the new gives us just a few verses in the idea of Jesus saying these words. Second coming Jesus. Second fulfilled promise Jesus saying these words. Behold, Revelation 22, 7, I'm coming soon. Soon, of course, as we know, according to scriptural history is relative. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Keeps means heed. Keeps means to guard and protect. Okay, dads. Means to observe and attend. We want to observe and attend and keep the words of prophecy in that book. The words that tell us Jesus is wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting father to people who obviously and desperately need a father. And he's the only prince of peace we have ever truly been offered. And by him and through him and for him, we can be offered forgiveness and a light that will not go out. And the only way that we can be prepared is to know him. And the only way the world can be prepared is if we will fulfill the words of prophecy in this book and show them. Y'all, that's why I think Christmas Eve is important. Just because of statistics. Statistics said people will come. More than any other time during the year. We think that should be Easter, but it's not. They're going to show up at Christmas. They're going to show up at our Franklin campus like seven different times worth. They're going to show up at our Nolansville campus at four different services. They're going to show up at our campus at three different options. The one that's on Monday, which is the 23rd, I like to call it Christmas Adam. And the two that are on the 24th, we like to call them Christmas Eve. These are great opportunities for people to come to church. And we got to be ready for them. I'm just going to throw out there, we're not going to be ready for them if you're not. Oh, back to those P words, present. But that changes up my Christmas holiday traditions. Well, if you're going to meet a whole lot of lost people and a whole lot of unchurched people at your normal everyday holiday traditions, by all means, please go do that. Um, but I would love for you to pick out a service to be here with us. Not just to raise a candle and worship Jesus. Oh, man, that's the most important. But to ultimately illustrate to what we hope will be a coming community around the world that we love them and that we're here for them. And that the reason we love them and are here for them is because there's a God who loves them and is here for them. And we want to prepare the way for them to know 
his son, Jesus. You talk about roles. That's the part we play for as long as our gracious God lets us play it. We get to be a church that's about seeing people who don't know yet that God gave them Jesus find and know and follow that Jesus. Not just his advice, not just trust him for the miracles, not just understand that he's our everlasting father, but to get that he gives us peace. The only way we're ever gonna find it is through him. So we wanna be a people who are ready and willing and able to live that out and to show it to everybody that we come in contact with. There are those I know that wrestles so much with this idea of Jesus being eternal father because of, again, the difficulty you have with your own. And my prayer today is that somehow God would reconcile, maybe not in the relationship, but in your heart of hearts, that he's there for you because his promises will be fulfilled for you. How it is right now, not how it has to stay because God fulfills his promises. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for being all the things that you are, all the things that you said you would be, all the things that you came to be. And Father, what I pray is that we would be a people who are who we're called to be in light of that. And that we know and believe and trust the promises that are true because of that. And that we are ready to be the preparers of the way. Because we're willing to trust that these promises are true for however long it takes for them to be fulfilled. Thank you for what you gave in Jesus the first go-round. What continues to linger throughout this world in Jesus because of the power of your Holy Spirit at work in it. And also what we can know and trust is coming when he returns. Father, I do pray right now boldly that you would bless us with many opportunities over the coming weeks to share Christ with people who are far from you, to meet strangers who will one day be our friends and brothers and sisters because they, they come in contact with the, the light and the truth of who you are, Jesus, and they just get so eat up with it they can't turn away. That's our prayer, and we make it in the name of Christ.